this is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. I'm Ilan Jerno, a fellow and director of policy research here at the Institute. I'm joined today by Dr. Matthew Levitt. He is a senior fellow and director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy's Stein Program in Counterterrorism and Intelligence. Uh, previously, he worked as a deputy assistant secretary for intelligence and analysis at the U.S. Department of the Treasury. He's worked for the FBI. He's advised on counterterrorism to the U.S. State Department. I'm very excited to talk to him today. He's the author of a new book coming out soon, Hezbollah, the Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Welcome to the program. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to start with a context-setting question and just ask you a little bit about what got you interested in, in this subject and what your background is on the, in the field. Well, I've been in and out of government working in counterterrorism for many years and pursued a PhD in uh, international security studies before that. Um, but what really got me uh, focused on this book uh, was a conference. I had just left the FBI uh, after having worked on 9-11 uh, and was invited to a U.S. government conference, not classified, but for uh, current and former U.S. Uh, intelligence analysts. Uh, by invitation only on Lebanon and Hezbollah. Most of the speakers that they brought in were academics or journalists from Lebanon, a few from the United States, and it was co-sponsored by uh, two different parts of the U.S. intelligence agency. And so each of the panels was moderated by a U.S. intelligence uh, official. And on almost every panel, there was someone who would say something like, look, I know that you Americans and the Israelis, you believe that Hezbollah's blown up things all over the world, but we all know it's not true. It's just Al-Qaeda, so enough already. It didn't surprise me necessarily that some of the people from Lebanon would say this. Lebanon's a deeply divided confessional society, and it's it's it doesn't do much the much good to, you know, uh, pick fights. Uh, but I was really kind of blown away that the U.S. government officials moderating didn't say boo, didn't say, well, I understand that's your perspective, but we have a different one. My favorite was when someone said, I know that you uh, Americans and Israelis think that there's some arch terrorist in Hezbollah named Imad Mugniya. But I've never met him, said this one academic from Lebanon. And so I went and got an interview with Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah. And I asked him, is there a guy named Mugnia? And Nasrallah told me no. So there you have it. Years later, when Mugnia was assassinated in Damascus in February 2008, and the man who was denied in life was embraced in death, I wrote an email, which I then didn't send, uh, saying to her, and now we're both right. But the experience left me thinking, how can it be that a conference like this could happen and a really respected, smart people would be saying such silliness about a group like Hezbollah, which is not only terrorist, it's also a political party and a social welfare movement and a militia, but it also is a transnational criminal organization and certainly is engaged in terrorist attacks worldwide. And when I had my assistant do a literature review, the answer became clear. There's tremendous amounts of literature out there on Hezbollah. And if you want to understand Hezbollah in terms of Lebanese politics, or in terms of the social welfare it provides at home, or it's uh, militia and militant activities targeting Israel along the Lebanese-Israeli border, there's lots you can read on that. But if you wanted to read about Hezbollah's bombings in Argentina in 92 and 94, about the nearly successful uh, Hezbollah bombing of the Israeli embassy in Bangkok, if you wanted to read about Hezbollah's involvement in the bombing of the Kobar Towers, U.S. Air Force barracks in Saudi Arabia, and a whole lot more, there was really nothing. And so... This started an almost 10-year process, which has led to this book. 
Wow, it's astonishing that there was that kind of passivity or, or non-recognition uh, about Hezbollah and its activities. So how about giving us a Hezbollah for dummies or a one-on-one snapshot of what, what do they stand for, what are they trying to do, and where do they come from? And then we can turn to what they're doing in the, in the global sphere. One of the most complicated parts of the book to write was you know, the early chapters uh, because you know the question you just asked is actually a lot more difficult to answer than you might think. Uh, Hezbollah was created by Iran uh, in the years after the Iranian Revolution in 1979. Uh, Hezbollah was created in Lebanon in the early 1980s. Different people give different exact dates, but around the 1983 time frame. Uh, and they were molded into one militant Shia uh, organization out of a motley crew of a whole host of other uh, smaller groups. Um, and what really helped coalesce them and, and uh, facilitated Iran's uh, creation of this one umbrella group called Hezbollah, or the Party of God, was the Israeli invasion of Lebanon. Um, the group is uh, dead set against the existence of Israel, but it is also a uh, radical extremist Shia organization. Um, it's, in its early year, years, it was much more explicit about its desire to create a Shia Islamic State in Lebanon. But over the years, it's played that down because, as I said, Lebanon is a deeply divided confessional community and uh, failure to uh, recognize and tolerate uh, the Sunnis and the Christian Maronites and the Druze <clears throat> would have united all those other groups against the Shia. It's also a pan-Shia organization and will help other Shia around the world. You have to keep in mind that the Shia have forever seen themselves, and with good reason, frankly, as being the downtrodden and, and poorly treated, not only by their fellow Muslims, the Sunnis, but others. Uh, and then on top of it all, uh, Hezbollah is a proxy, a militant proxy uh, for Iran. Now, the nature of that relationship has <clears throat> shifted over time, but it's always been a constant. Today, the U.S. intelligence community assesses that the Hezbollah-Iran relationship is a, quote, strategic partnership, with Iran as the primary partner. And so that may help explain, if we can fast forward to today, why it is that Hezbollah might do things like blowing up busloads of civilians in Burgas, Bulgaria, or attempting to do so in Cyprus, or participating in the Syrian uh, civil war on the side of Iran and the Assad regime, when doing such things uh, have real political repercussions and costs to the group at home. If Hezbollah is really uh, a Lebanese entity, why would they do such a thing? And the answer is because they have multiple and competing identities. They are Lebanese. They care about Lebanon, but much more so their, their position in Lebanon. But they're also uh, pan-Shia proxies. So, for example, when Iran wants to send weapons to Shia Houthi rebels in Yemen. They use Hezbollah as the delivery boy. And they are in partnership as a proxy for and with Iran. And so when Iran wants them to target Israeli tourists around the world or to shore up the Assad regime, uh, they will do that. And so it's complicated. It really takes some sophisticated analysis to be able to understand any given decision that is taken. It has to do in large part with how they balance their competing interests. You mentioned in passing earlier some of the well-known, some of them not so well-known attacks that Hezbollah has been behind. Can you sketch out a little bit on some of the more notable ones that people might have heard of, say, I think one of them you write about is the hijacking of a TWA flight, and then there's one that features in the book in passing as well, which is 
the kidnapping of uh, CIA station chief in Beirut, Lebanon. So these were both in the earlier years. Um, the uh, kidnapping of CIA station chief uh, William Buckley was part of the uh, a long series and complicated history of Hezbollah kidnappings uh, in Lebanon. And of course, the hijacking of TWA 847 was a watershed event. Uh, and most clearly for the CIA and the State Department, as I document in the book through declassified uh, documents, um, drove home for them the way that Middle Eastern terrorism was, as they put it, bleeding uh, from the Middle East into Europe. Uh, TW847 is thought of as a Middle Eastern terrorist event because it was Hezbollah that did the hijacking and they hijacked the plate to, plane to Beirut and then to Algiers and Beirut and back and forth again. But it was actually a European flight en route from um, Athens to Rome uh, and onward to the United States. Um, and uh, one of the key hijackers in that incident uh, later uh, was involved in uh, ferrying explosives uh, to Hezbollah terrorists in Europe. He was captured at the airport in Frankfurt along with his brother. He was arrested. His brother, uh, Mohammed Hamadi, was arrested. His brother, Abbas, was released because he wasn't carrying the explosives. But Mohammed Hamadi uh, was a prince of Hezbollah, having been involved in the TWA-847 hijacking, uh, and they really wanted him released. So Abbas, back home, kidnapped two people he thought were German citizens. Turns out they were Swiss, so they released them. Abbas flew back to Germany 13 days after his brother was uh, arrested, and he was released to carry out some type of plot there, and he was arrested as well. Um, Mohammed Hamadi served uh, quite a few years in prison, was then released and is believed to be back home in Lebanon. There's still an outstanding U.S. warrant for his arrest because of his role in the TWA hijacking. TWA hijacking was also, of course, the debut of Imad Mugnia, who we discussed earlier and until his death in 2008 was the head of Hezbollah's uh, militant militia and its terrorist wing, the Islamic Jihad Organization or External Security Organization, as, as some refer to it. Uh, but there are a whole host of others, not only famous ones that many people might have heard of, the 1992 bombing of the Israeli embassy in Buenos Aires, the bombing two years later, uh, we just had the 19th anniversary uh, a couple of weeks ago of the bombing of the Amia Jewish Community Center in Buenos Aires, uh, the bombing of Kobar Towers Barracks in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia in 1996. There are a whole host of other plots, some that were successful, some that were thwarted, that most people don't know about. Hijackings in Africa, uh, plots targeting Israeli, American, or other targets in, in Germany and elsewhere. Uh, I have to say that having worked on this issue in and out of government, I was surprised at how much uh, material I found that I hadn't known about, especially Hezbollah's activity in Africa and in Southeast Asia. So I remember about five, six years ago when the Iraq war was raging and the insurgency was uh, raging as well. There was a debate about how much or if at all Iran was uh, supporting the insurgents and what role and how much could be traced back in terms of weapons and so forth. And in the book, you talk about Hezbollah's role in Iraq. And I wanted to get into that because it seems like it's a, it illustrates one of the points you made earlier about the way Iran and Hezbollah work together. It's actually a great example. In the early uh, days of the war, there was a lot of debate. And as the war progressed, a lot more evidence came out, not only about uh, Iran's direct involvement um, and U.S. forces captured very senior 
uh, Revolutionary Guard Corps commanders, the number three uh, commander in the Guard Corps, among others, in Iraq, especially through uh, the Ramazan Corps, which was the core of the IRGC focused uh, on Iraq, but also of their use of Hezbollah and Hezbollah's creation of a dedicated uh, unit for this purpose, which they called Unit 3800. Um, again, there was a lot of debate, even in the press at the time. Some people were saying there was Hezbollah, others were saying there wasn't enough evidence. Uh, all of this was put to bed over time as more people were captured, in particular, a very senior Hezbollah commander named Ali Musa Dakduk al-Musawi. Dakduk was captured in southern Iraq by British um, uh, forces. And when they uh, raided the house where they were actually looking for someone else, and they found him as well, uh, they were looking for a particular uh, Iraqi Shia militant. Uh, he played the role of a deaf and dumb individual uh, and didn't speak for, I think it was a couple of weeks. Uh, they did find on his person false documentation, uh, including government IDs, uh, saying that he was two different people working for two different Iraqi government ministries. Um, but after a couple of weeks, as they put together the evidence and they confronted him, he uh, he came clean and said, yes, I'm a senior Hezbollah militant. And he was there training Iraqi Shia militants and also, we believe, participating in some attacks. And again, he, too, has since been indicted uh, in the United States for his role in an attack that led uh, an ambush uh, that led to the death of several U.S. US soldiers in, in southern Iraq. It's interesting, though, uh, in the first instance, Iran was using Hezbollah just as trainers. And among the... Uh, 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 evidence that U.S. military forces found in Iraq as they captured people and interviewed them was that uh, the Shia militants from Iraq were saying that they didn't really like the uh, Iranian trainers who talked down to them, spoke Farsi, not Arabic, uh, treated them like they didn't know anything about their own religion and would insist that they attend kind of Islam 101 courses. Uh, they just felt that they, they you know, didn't treat them as equals, whereas Hezbollah, coming from Lebanon, spoke to them in Arabic and treated them with respect, and they felt that the training they got was more sophisticated. Some of that training was given in Iraq, some of it in Iran, and then some of the more sophisticated courses, they would actually fly people from Iran back to Lebanon uh, and train them there. During the July 2006 war between Israel and Hezbollah, some of these Iraqi Shia militants were stuck in Lebanon uh, because of the war, and some are believed to have engaged in the fighting. What's more interesting, uh, because Hezbollah is a Shia organization, it does, shouldn't surprise that they would train other Shia militant organizations. But what is surprising is that among the other militant organizations who were in Lebanon in 2006 during the war, uh, stuck there because they were getting training at the time, were members of the Somali Shabab group, which is an al-Qaeda radical Sunni-affiliated group. So it's interesting you started off with the experience you had at the conference and where people were dismissive, I would say, given your characterization. I'm interested in how you would compare people, the reality of Hezbollah's operational capabilities and its reach and how much it's capable of doing and what most people recognize as a, at least formally, if not still, a global Islamic terrorist group, Al-Qaeda, in terms of what al-Qaeda is capable of doing? Well, at a simplistic level, there's plenty of comparison to make because they are both radical Islamist groups that engage in acts of terrorism. But they're very, very different, not only because al-Qaeda is a radical Sunni group and uh, Hezbollah is a radical Shia group, uh, but more so because al-Qaeda is much more nihilistic. 
Al-Qaeda, if they could hit us today, they would. Uh, Hezbollah is much more calculating. It is not only a terrorist organization, as Al-Qaeda is. It, it truly is a political organization, um, and it has uh, real political goals in mind. Uh, it is rational and calculating, though not necessarily in the way you or I as Westerners might think of it. Um, and in some ways, that makes them much more dangerous. I would caution, however, that there tends to be uh, a belief out there, even among experts, that because the Sunni and the Shia have often fought, if you look at the terrible infighting that happened during the Iraq war, if you look at what's happening today in Syria, uh, and that therefore uh, Shia and Sunnis never cooperate together. And that's not true. Uh, as I mentioned, you know, Hezbollah was training the Sunni al-Qaeda-affiliated uh, Shabab group from Somalia. Um, when al-Qaeda wanted to blow up our embassies in East Africa, in preparation for those attacks, they sent some of their operatives to Iran for training from Iran and others to Lebanon for training from Hezbollah. There is a very strong element of my enemy's enemy is my friend, um, and that may decrease at times of peak tension between the groups like right now, but it's not the case that these groups will never cooperate together. I want to turn to an aspect that you touch on near the end of the book regarding Syria and Hezbollah. Tell us about that relationship. Well, it was a little frustrating for me because, you know, at a certain point, a writer has to stop and has to just produce <laughs> a book for his editors who, you know, are, are interested in publishing a book. Hezbollah uh, is obviously an ongoing story. And as I was finishing the book, the, the war in Iraq was, was just picking up steam. And so there's really only kind of the uh, introductions, the early pieces of this uh, in the book. Um, since then, I've been doing a lot more research and writing on the issue. And th there is no question anymore that Hezbollah is fighting alongside the Assad regime and alongside Iranian uh, special uh, advisors uh, in Syria. Hezbollah had denied this for a very long time, uh, but now it's come out quite clearly. In the early days, it was just evidence of, you know, Hezbollah uh, militants would be sent home in body bags and there would be burials in Lebanon where senior Hezbollah officials would attend and officiate and just say things like, you know, so-and-so came home from doing his jihadi duties without explaining anything more. At first, it just the, the, the pace of those body bags coming home uh, picked up so that it was very hard for them to deny it. Second... You know, Hezbollah was leading the government in Lebanon, and the government of Lebanon had an official policy of disassociation, non-involvement in Syria, and the only party that was really involved at that early stage was Hezbollah, since the Sunnis are involved too, but there's a real worry that this war might be become more sectarian and dragged across the border into Lebanon, which is a deeply divided confessional sectarian country, which suffered a very, very long and devastating civil war, and there's great concerns about that. Now Hezbollah admits that it's there, and in part that is just not up for debate because of the clear and obvious and open role that Hezbollah played in the Battle of Qusayr. Uh, and this is a critical crossroads, not only between Syria and Lebanon, but going up the roads uh, north and then west into the uh, Alawi traditional areas along the coast. Uh, and the Assad regime was very, very keen on opening those roads uh, so there would be you know, direct, easy travel between Damascus and places like uh, Latakia. Uh, so Hezbollah has gone all in in Syria, even though it means that it's turning the weapons of what it calls resistance against Israel against fellow Muslims. And that is obviously costing it tremendously at home and in the region. It's not the first time they've done this. 
but it's the first time they've done this to this scale and scope and this obviously. The last time was when they took over Beirut by force of arms in 2008 uh, and killed some uh, fellow Lebanese. In fact, that particular incident was one of the things that the government of New Zealand cited when New Zealand banned the military wing of Hezbollah. But now you have them involved in a much broader war uh, alongside a regime that is widely seen as having you know, butchered its, its own civilians, used chemical weapons, targeted uh, neighborhoods, civilian neighborhoods with uh, uh, missiles, uh, and is completely beyond the pale. What makes this conflict especially difficult, however, is that you don't really have good guys and bad guys. Iran, Hezbollah, Assad, they're, they're certainly not good guys. I would consider them bad guys. But on the rebel side, you also still have embedded within them, and to be frank, some of the strongest fighting unit, units among them, groups that are that are true Al Qaeda, and they are they are just as bad. Uh, what the West governments today are having a hard time doing is trying to you know, weed the uh, radical Sunni extremists, the Al Qaeda types, out from the rebels, so that there might be a uh, somewhat moderate, uh, uh, inclined to democratic elements that could be supported within the rebels. So I want to go back to something you mentioned in explaining uh, this relationship. You mentioned that the New Zealand government uh, prescribed the military wing. And I've read quite a bit, and you cover this in the book too, about how different governments uh, try to parse out these different parts of Hezbollah and ban this, but not that. And there was quite a bit of debate recently about what the European Union might do. So. Let me challenge the this from the devil's advocate perspective. So do you think it can be parsed out and that there's hard divisions between the different wings of the movement, between the political and the fighting wing? How do you see those fitting together? Um, there is no distinction between the various wings of Hezbollah, full stop. Uh, and in the book, I get into a great deal of evidence to support that. But you don't even need that. In the wake of the European Union decision to ban the military wing only of Hezbollah just a week or so ago, Hezbollah officials have again, because they've done this in the past, but again, have come out very, very clearly and explained there is no distinction between our wings. Nasrallah, the secretary general of Hezbollah, even jokingly said to the EU representative, maybe I should appoint some of our quote-unquote military officials to our quote-unquote political positions. Now, sort of some of this, uh, the declassified CIA documents that I was able to accumulate for the book, before Nasrallah became the Secretary General, which I guess is technically a political position, he was considered one of the most hardline militants in the group, and it was involved personally in what are, you know, by any definition, military or terrorist incidents. Um, the structure of Hezbollah is such that the terrorist and military wings report to a quote-unquote jihad council, which reports to the shura or consultative council, which is led by Nasrallah. The European Union was very, very keen on trying to parse this out, and it frankly was a distinction of political convenience because they wanted to be able to continue to have contact with Hezbollah politicians and uh, Lebanese government officials who are members of Hezbollah. Uh, in order to try and maintain stability in Lebanon and try and rein in Hezbollah's uh, more egregious activities in the region. Um, and so this is why they decided to do it in this way. Other countries like the United States and, of course, Israel and Canada, the Netherlands have banned all of Hezbollah writ large. 
And in particular, when you're trying to target their finances, that's much more important because, as you can imagine, if I designate one part of a group but not the other part of the group, then they'll just stop raising money under the ban part and they'll continue raising money under the uh, uh, legal part. And then they can send the money whenever they want when they get back home to their you know, treasurer. Um, Hezbollah purposefully has mixed uh, its legitimate and illegitimate, uh, has muddied the waters between them because it has worked. So while many people are critical of the EU decision, and I, I certainly believe that the EU should eventually expand it to include all of Hezbollah, there is great utility in what they've done for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is that this should help begin to send a message to Hezbollah that uh, they cannot operate with impunity, thinking that they will not be held to account for their military or terrorist activities simply because they are also a duly elected political and well-known social welfare provider uh, in, in Lebanon, that they will incur a political cost uh, for their terrorist activities. Um, also, there's technical reasons why this is important. It will enable European countries, the majority of whom have not until now carried out proactive intelligence investigations of Hezbollah because it was not a banned entity. It will enable those countries to be able to do just that so long as they can make any type of connection at all to the military wing. And that should lead to constricting the operating environment for Hezbollah in Europe. Uh, Hezbollah has long used Europe as its near abroad and operated there with impunity. And frankly, it wasn't till Hezbollah uh, actually carried out a bombing in Burgas, Bulgaria, killing six individuals, including a European, and wounding many more, that the Europeans really took this on. And then as they were having this debate, Hussam Yakub, a dual Lebanese-Swedish citizen and Hezbollah operative, that means a European Hezbollah operative, was caught, uh, arrested, convicted, and confessed uh, as being a Hezbollah guy who was doing similar surveillance of Israeli tourists arriving in Cyprus, and then on top of that, there's another dual Lebanese-Swedish, again, European Hezbollah operative now on trial in Thailand, Hussein Atras. And so the, the amount of evidence was just growing and compelling. So I want to change directions a little bit. So kind of summing up a little bit, you've shown how there's massive reach for this organization and how it has different facets. So what would you say... It should be the priority for Americans in understanding this and, and seeing the significance and, and threat? Well, you know, Hezbollah has never carried out an operation in the United States. That said, the FBI has uh, testified before Congress that they've seen Hezbollah carrying out surveillance of federal buildings and things like that in this country. And it is a matter, matter of concern, especially since an Iranian-American uh, was recently uh, pled guilty and sentenced to 25 years for his role in a plot to uh, bomb a restaurant where the Saudi ambassador to the United States here in Washington, D.C., uh, was going to be eating. And that's led the U.S. intelligence community to completely reassess its threat assessment. And they're now very, very concerned about Iranian agents and Iranian proxies like Hezbollah uh, and the fact that they may be more inclined to do things here in the United States uh, especially if tensions with Iran continue uh, to get worse over its nuclear program. But even outside of uh, the United States, Hezbollah has already targeted Americans. Until 9-11, Hezbollah was responsible for the deaths of more Americans than any other terrorist organization, bombing our embassy in Beirut, the uh, uh, Marines barracks in Beirut, the Kobar Towers, Air Force barracks in Saudi Arabia. And since then, they've tried 
uh, multiple times to carry out other types of attacks. More most recently, uh, involvement in Iranian and Hezbollah attacks to target American diplomats around the world, for example, in Baku, Azerbaijan. Uh, and then whether or not they're targeting American citizens, they're targeting civilians around the world, and we as Americans, we're not okay with that. Uh, so there are any group that's going to go around blowing up uh, cafes or buses, uh, that's beyond the pale, and, and we need to, and we have, the United States has called Hezbollah writ large, the terrorist organization it, it is from the very beginning of when we had such lists in 96 and 97. Uh, working closely with our allies around the world, there's lots that we can do uh, diplomatically, in terms of law enforcement cooperation, intelligence cooperation, uh, to uh, to make it more difficult for people who are involved in this type of illicit activity. And they're involved, by the way, in, in moving and laundering drugs and counterfeiting currency, counterfeiting goods, but all the way to, uh, if we can just put it in its most simplest term, murder. Uh, and we should be working with our allies around the world to make sure that they're not capable of doing what they want to do. And you talk a little bit about you know, what you characterize as a weakness of or Hezbollah or uh, an opportunity to further weaken them. Can you say a bit more about that? There are lots of ways in which we can go about doing that. And I want to be clear, I'm talking about their illicit activities. I, you know, I don't particularly care for their politics. But if Hezbollah was just a radical political organization that espoused ideas that I was very much against but did so in a political uh, way through democratic channels, that would be, that would be something different. But Hezbollah exposes itself to all kinds of additional scrutiny by virtue of engaging in all these illicit activities. Uh, so Hezbollah, uh, for Hezbollah uh, operatives, including the head of Hezbollah's military wing right now, Mustafa Badruddin, have been indicted by the UN's Special Tribunal for Lebanon, which is meeting in The Hague, and has charged them with the murder of former Lebanese Prime Minister Rafik Hariri. There are Hezbollah operatives on trial right now in Nigeria, in Thailand. There are cases in Canada and the United States. Um, but I think where the lowest hanging fruit is, is uh, holding Hezbollah accountable for the massive standard criminal activity that they're engaged in, including laundering the proceeds of narcotics uh, and moving narcotics uh, from South America to Africa, up into Europe and elsewhere, across the 10th parallel, that most narrow point between uh, South America and uh, West Africa, which law enforcement refers to as Highway 10, uh, counterfeiting currency and much, much more, and exposing them uh, so that people understand that they're not some type of, you know, uh, freedom fighters working off some uh, high and mighty ideology. Uh, they are criminals in the first and simplest sense, and they are uh, radical zealots who will kill for ideological purposes as well. Um, that they are also social welfare providers is true, uh, in large part to build grassroots support for their more militant activities, but not only. Uh, but that should not buy them impunity for expressly uh, illegitimate and illegal activities. Dr. Levitt, thank you for joining us. It's been fascinating to hear about your research on Hezbollah, and I hope your work gets the visibility it deserves. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast. This episode, with host Alain Giorno and guest Dr. Matthew Levitt, is titled Hezbollah's Global Footprint. Dr. Levitt is a senior fellow and director of the Washington Institute's Stein Program on Counterterrorism and Intelligence. 
You can find more information about Dr. Levitt under the Fellows tab on the Washington Institute website at washingtoninstitute.org. Dr. Levitt's new book is titled Hezbollah, The Global Footprint of Lebanon's Party of God. Copies are available through the Georgetown University Press and, of course, on Amazon. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.einrandcenter.org or on iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at einrand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.